Please be seated, and good morning, good to see you. Welcome to everyone joining us via live stream. We are uh, today looking at two words from Jesus, to the wounded and weary, take heart. This is the title of our series this fall, so you can turn with me to Matthew. Chapter 9 in your bulletins or Bibles. The English word for heart can refer to the biological organ at the center uh, of our bodies. It's a tough yet tender core that keeps the body moving forward. The biological heart has the power to circulate nutrition and life-giving oxygen to the entire system. A weak heart is very dangerous to the rest of the body. A strong heart is life-giving to the rest of the body. The English word for heart can also refer to the spiritual heart that sustains our life with life-giving faith, hope, and love, circulating it throughout our entire system because the spiritual heart is the inmost spiritual organ of our whole system. It's tough, it's tender, and it keeps our life moving forward. Um, A weak heart, spiritually, is very dangerous to the rest of our life. A strong heart is life-giving to every other part of our life. And every single one of us is going to have to make a choice. Are we going to let circumstances determine the state of our spiritual heart? Or are we going to let the Lord Jesus determine the state of our spiritual heart? Our hearts uh, can be absolutely determined and pushed around, uh, raised up and down by circumstances. They can be, our hearts can be wooed or broken. Our hearts can be puffed up or cast down. Our hearts can grow tender or hardened. Our hearts can be troubled. Our hearts can be filled. And we could spend all of our life letting the state of our hearts be determined by whatever circumstances, what people say to us. Or we can let Jesus determine the state of our hearts. According to Jesus, we have a keen responsibility to take ownership for our hearts. No one has more power over our hearts than ourselves. Aside from God, he has determined that we will have the most influence over our own heart's condition. That is our God-given authority. And so uh, when our hearts are cast down, we have the authority to lift up our hearts to the Lord. If we have lost heart, we have authority to take heart. This phrase, take heart, in the New Testament, the Greek word behind the word that we translate take heart is used seven times in the New Testament exclusively by Jesus Christ and exclusively as a command to people in desperate circumstances. Um, They had every reason to lose heart. Every one of these uh, situations, sometimes in prison, sometimes in danger, sometimes facing a hopeless situation. And when Jesus speaks these words to people, he is transferring confidence from the center of his being into the center of their being. And he is asking them to take hold of what he's giving them and to take action. Now, it's very easy to lose heart if we are facing what some of you have faced, which is a dire medical situation. Or maybe someone that you care about is facing a dire medical situation. Our physical condition can absolutely determine or have influence over the state of our emotional uh, heart. And so we're going to see how Jesus interacts with someone um, who is in a very hopeless, dire medical situation. 
look with me at Matthew 9, verse 1. And we'll read about it. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't know what you do when you enter a new city or an old city, but uh, I tend to hit up my favorite restaurants and old haunts and see old friends. What Jesus does whenever he enters a city, if you notice that he doesn't hit up the, the restaurants and the old haunts, he actually, um, when he enters a new town or city, he finds the people who are in the most desperate straits in that city, or they find him and they have an interaction. And as Jesus enters into his sort of home base of Capernaum, there's a group of people who carry a man to him who is paralyzed. Now, the other gospel writers tell us that um, these friends of the paralytic, this man who couldn't walk, they cut a hole in the roof of a house, and Jesus was in the middle of uh, like a teaching dialogue, and they lowered this man um, to Jesus in order to have Jesus heal him. Now, we don't know why this man was lying on a bed. We don't know why he was a paralytic. It could have been that uh, he was paralyzed from birth, and the mat, the bed, is like all he knew. It could have been that he was attacked by a Roman soldier for a minor offense and was injured. Or he may have been diagnosed with an illness sometime in his life, and that just took away his ability to walk. Dire medical situations can be incredibly disheartening. And some of you know what it's like to sort of carry on day after day with chronic fatigue, acute pain, or a diagnosis of cancer, MS, or infertility. Others know how disheartening can be if there is no diagnosis at all, if there's no treatment, and especially if there is no cure, there's no way to feel better, to know life as you once knew it. When our physical body stops working for us, we sure can lose heart, can't we? Now, Jesus knows this, and he knew the paralytic better even than the friends who were carrying him. Notice what Jesus says to him. It's a bit of a surprise. In verse 2, he says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, first of all, he says to him, my son. And so this is really helping us understand that Jesus has a real fatherly heart for people in circumstances like this. He was speaking to this man's heart. He wasn't simply solving his problem. He was speaking to his heart as a father speaks to his son and encouraging him. And then even more surprising are these words, your sins are forgiven. Why would he say this? Why would he not focus on the physical condition? Well, Jesus doesn't look on the outward appearance like most of us do. He looks on the heart and he sees the real issue behind all the issues. Um, he knew that somewhere underneath this man's paralyzed condition was a guilty conscience, that there was something weighing on his soul that needed to be released, and that that was actually the fundamental greatest healing that this man could ever receive is a forgiveness of sins from the Son of God. His soul needed to be healed. And maybe it was self-pity that he just had suffered so much and he was just weighed down with self-pity, or maybe there was bitterness, bitterness against everyone else who had an easier life than him. It could have been a bitterness against those who had done him harm or maybe patterns of deceit or manipulation that he had learned, like, this is how I get by when I'm paralyzed. This is how I control people when I can't walk among them. 
Sometimes suffering tempts us more to sin than anything else because we feel like we have a license to. There's no other way. Yet Jesus is ready to forgive him, to make him right with God. He knows that if this man's sins are forgiven, that ultimately his body would follow in that healing. Jesus knew that ultimately the forgiveness of sins before God is the first and primary healing that any of us could receive because if we are right before God, he will raise us up on the last day and our bodies will be healed, not just for a few years or decades, but forever in his presence. It's the reason that any of us can take heart. It's the foundation, the cornerstone for taking heart is to hear from Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. If we can be forgiven, everything else will be taken care of and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, not even death. So he tells him your sins are forgiven, but notice there's an obstacle to taking heart, obstacle that I have dealt with my whole life and maybe you have dealt with in your life and it's called evil thoughts. There's a big obstacle to taking heart. And it's what's known in recovery circles as stinking thinking. Verse three, and behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. They're talking about Jesus. This man is blaspheming, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your thoughts, in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? What's easier to say? The answer, of course, is like they're equally easy to say. Um, the scribes were mumbling to themselves, Jesus can't. Jesus can't forgive sins. Only God can do that. This man is blaspheming. Yet that itself was a blasphemous evil thought. To say that Jesus Christ cannot forgive sins. He's the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. He has all authority in heaven and on earth to forgive someone. Now, our thoughts matter. Our thoughts about Jesus, if they go off track, our hearts will follow. And if our hearts follow, our lives will follow. So have you ever had thoughts like this fester in your mind? Jesus can't. Jesus can't, therefore I can't. Jesus can't redeem this situation, therefore I can't keep praying about it. Jesus can't bring justice, therefore I can't stop myself from getting revenge. Jesus can't forgive my sin, therefore I can't stop myself from sinning more. Jesus can't reach my skeptical friend, therefore I can't keep reaching out with his love. Jesus can't heal me, therefore I can't worship him. That's what losing heart sounds like. That's the soundtrack to losing heart. Jesus can't and I can't. Now, it's our job to guard our hearts. Did you know that? It's our job to guard our hearts. And that begins by paying attention to what Jesus has done, not what he can't do. Back to the story, Jesus takes action to demonstrate what he can do to change the soundtrack of the situation. So verse six, Jesus says, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And Jesus always gives people something to do when he gives them the healing. He makes them capable of taking agency. Verse 7, 
And he rose and went home. Paralytic response. Verse 8, but when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Wow, that God could give such authority to people and to this man in particular. They were afraid. They glorified God. What if we responded like the paralytic and paid attention to what Jesus can do? What if we responded like the crowds and paid attention to what Jesus can do? Instead of the old soundtrack, what if we took a new soundtrack, which is um, Jesus has, therefore I will. Jesus has healed me, therefore I will pick up my mat and walk home. Jesus has performed a miracle. Therefore, I will glorify God. Jesus has rose again. Therefore, I will hope in him. Jesus has called me. Therefore, I will follow him. Jesus has given me a gift. Therefore, I will exercise it no matter what I feel today. This is what it means to encourage yourself in the Lord, which is what David did when he was in the cave of Adullam. Jesus has given you and me the authority to take heart, and we take heart by telling ourselves the truth, the truth. Have you ever noticed the difference between listening to yourself and talking to yourself? Listening to yourself and talking to yourself, it makes all the difference in the world. Listening to yourself is letting fear and shame and pride and self-pity whisper suggestions to you like this. You can't keep going. You can't obey. Just give up. Everybody's against you. You don't have any friends. Go a different way. Take matters into your own hands. You can't really trust God. You've learned that you know better, don't you, than to trust God. That's what listening to yourself sounds like. Talking to yourself sounds like this. Take heart, self. Jesus has promised to be with you in the fire and the flood. He's promised to be with you till the very end of the age. He's with you in the valley. He's with you on the heights. Follow him. Trust him. He will guide you. He will be with you. It's one of major discipleship issues for me. I remember my parents telling me as a kid, Aaron, you're losing perspective again. And one of the things I had to realize as I grew up in Christ is that it is my job to guard my heart. It is my job to talk to myself. And sometimes I do it on the street. People give me the looks like, um, you know what I mean? The looks that you give people who are talking to themselves on the street. You're breaking a cultural value right now, dude. Um, And I tell myself, Aaron, take heart. Jesus is with you. He's called you. You have a heavenly father who has forgiven your sin and healed your diseases and crowned you with loving kindness. Follow him, trust him. Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your trust in God. If we stop listening to ourselves and start talking to ourselves, we will have the capacity to take heart in Jesus, and our whole life will follow. So uh, there's a medical there's medical situations right that can discourage us. There's other plenty of other situations that can discourage us, and another one is when you're a broken-hearted parent. When you're a broken-hearted parent, let's consider this. Um, skipping to verse 18, we see this story. While uh, Jesus was saying these things to them, behold, 
a ruler came in and knelt before him. This is a man who becomes, he gets down on his knees or he gets prostrate before Jesus. And he says, my daughter has just died. Or, or you could understand it. My daughter is at the precipice of death, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him, followed this ruler and with his disciples. Now this father has a heart that is broken, yet it's hopeful. It was hopeful enough to carry, his legs carried him to Jesus and he knelt down before Jesus and he spoke words of faith and said, you can raise up my daughter. Um, You know, his daughter has died or is near death, yet Jesus is nearby. He's a ruler, yet he kneels, he prostrates himself and he begs for a resurrection. If you are a parent, if you're a parent, a biological parent, or you've adopted someone, or you're a spiritual parent, you really care, you're invested in the life of a young person. You're invested in the life, um, or maybe even of an adult child. Your situation might be less dramatic than this situation. Yet every day, we parents are challenged to keep our hearts, are we not? We are challenged to keep our hearts as parents because at every stage of parenting, Our kids are vulnerable, and they make their own choices. They're challenged, and they can be challenging. Parenting can leave parents swamped, exhausted, discouraged, and disheartened. And sometimes it seems to parents that nothing that you do as a parent will help. It seems to only make it worse. Um, Sometimes it seems that efforts to love and support our kids, it's not enough for them. They need more to thrive. And so when we lose heart as a parent, we can stop doing what this man did, which is to come to Jesus with the needs that our kids have and to ask Jesus to meet those needs. Our kids need our intercession. They need our prayers. And it's one of the best ways that we can parent our kids, no matter what age they are, is to bring them before Jesus. The brokenhearted parent here advocates for his daughter who has died. And Jesus responds to the advocacy. He responds to the intercession and he rises and he moves towards the daughter. Yet before he gets too far, there's an interruption. And there's always interruptions in Jesus's ministry. Here's one, verse 20. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Now, this woman had a 12-year bleeding condition. Um, Like the leper we met a few weeks ago, this woman's bodily condition has likely cost her some access both to people as well as to temple because of ritual uncleanness. The Gospel of Mark tells uh, us that she spent all her money on doctors. And this happens in our country. People spend all of their money. So you have the first challenge, which is to like the medical situation, which is in some cases a nightmare. And then the next challenge is the, are the bills that you get. And sometimes it's astronomical. There are so many people who have gone bankrupt in our country and it's a matter of injustice. And this woman knows what this is like because for 12 years, she spent all her money on doctors. It didn't make it better. And she's bankrupt as well as ritually unclean. She's in a desperate situation. And sometimes there's just a way that Jesus can come to us when we've lost everything. And the only thing that we can do is to reach forward and go, if I just touch the hem of his garment, I will be made whole. And she comes up 
she kind of sneaks up behind him, hoping he won't notice, touches the fringe of his garment. And uh, verse 22, Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Literally, your faith has saved you. And instantly the woman was made well. Now, uh, how does this woman's faith save her? Is that confusing to you? Do you kind of have a pause when you hear that, that this woman's faith could save her? Somehow her faith and her healing had a connection point and they were intertwined. But we need to be really careful with extrapolating out from that connection. Have you ever heard this in your life? You didn't get healed because you didn't have enough faith. That brings so much damage if it's presented that way. Um, and it can really confuse people that we are the source of our salvation rather than Jesus. Like, do I need to feel a certain kind of way about Jesus in order for him to heal me? Do I have to pray a certain way? Do I have to say, Jesus, in order for him to actually save me? In the scriptures, the word faith refers to venturing on God, taking action, like this woman did. She didn't even want to be seen. She was just like, I'm just going to touch the hem of his garment. And he's turned around and he's like, all right, who was it? And she actually, the Gospel of Mark says that she came cowering before him, but she said, it was me. And Jesus then turned to her and told her these words. She ventured on God. That's what faith means. You can't sometimes feel that God is real. Sometimes you don't know for sure that God is real, but you do know enough that God can be trusted with your action, with you following him venturing on him. So you act. This woman touched the hem of his garment. For you or me, it could just be the simple act of worship, of prayer, of obedience, of taking a risk, of giving away our money, of giving away our encouragement, of bringing a child into this world can be an act of faith. Jesus sees this in us and he rewards it. He wants us to exercise this faith when we cannot see him, when we don't feel like he's there under duress, when we're suffering. It's one of the greatest glories of women and men in Jesus is to act and venture on God when they can't feel that God is there. So this woman gets healed, but what about the other woman? What about the daughter who's on the precipice of death or perhaps has died already? And this story is really important. The way this ends, I think for every single one of us, this is an important way that this story ends because every single one of us needs to see an example of what taking heart looks like. And Jesus shows us what taking heart looks like by the way he finishes the job here. And so uh, if you've ever set out in your life to fulfill a hard job, to fulfill a calling, you should expect opposition. You should expect um, setbacks, frustration, Naysaying, um, logistical problems, headaches, especially when you're close to the finish line, especially when you're close to a breakthrough. We see this in miniature in this story. Jesus is about to heal the daughter, but first he has to persist past the physical and the emotional blockades that are in his path. Verse 23, when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away go away now, go away, because this girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. 
ha, 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 Jesus, go away, she's dead, and we're mourning her death. They tried to discourage him. They tried to laugh him away, laugh him out of finishing the job. Someone has already hired professional mourners to mark the death of the child. The village has gathered around to mourn and to wail, as was their custom. Um, And Jesus sees the situation through God's eyes, not the eyes of the crowd. So he tells the crowd and the musicians to go away. Stop playing your flute and stop wailing. In fact, you need to leave because the situation is not as it appears at the surface. She's sleeping. She's not dead. She will rise up. And they laugh. Now, this is not the last time that Jesus will be laughed at while doing a hard job and getting close to the finish line. As we said before, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And while he was this close to finishing that job, people jeered at him and laughed at him. They mocked him while he was being whipped. And then when he was on the cross, um, taking away the sins of the world, people jeered at him, laughed at him. Hey, he saved others, let him save himself. And laughing at someone and mocking them is a really key way of belittling their calling and making them seem smaller than God sees them. Now, I love the response of Jesus to the laughing. Verse 25, but when the crowds had been put outside, and the word for this is cast or thrown out, Jesus casts out the crowd and the flute players. He went in, and Mark tells us that he took his, the, the parents of the girl with him, the mother, the father, come with me, let's go to your daughter. And then he went in, and it's a real tender moment because he takes this girl by the hand, and the girl takes a breath, and she rises up, and a resurrection happened. And the report of this went through all that district. Jesus either raised a girl from death or saved a girl from death, and we all thought he was crazy. Now, this is not the last time that Jesus would see a resurrection. And it's not the last report that would quickly spread about that resurrection. Jesus finishes the job. He raises the dead, all because he took heart in the power of God. He did it this time. And then when it counted, he put himself in the hands of the Father, and he let himself die. And he let the Father raise him up by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the, the word of that has spread ever since. If you want to fulfill the calling God has on your life, you'll notice that at particular times that it's easy to lose heart. Number one, at the beginning. At the beginning, um, there will often be a time of waiting and preparation, and you'll find yourself saying, when will I ever finally get going? My calling will never activate. I'll never do what I see my peers doing. Beginning is a key time to expect opposition and discouragement. In the middle is a second time when you're tired, uh, when you're exhausted, and when you've suffered long. Expect that you will be tempted to lose heart. You'll think to yourself, is this leading anywhere? Should I just quit? Should I just give up? Also, Expect it, number three, at the end, when you're getting close to the finish line, close to a breakthrough, close to a new stage of your life calling, um, all hell may break loose and throw the kitchen sink at you. Expect opposition. Expect temptation to lose heart. In each of these cases, 
These are times not just to take heart, but to lift up your heart. To lift up your heart to the Lord in worship. And this is something that we do when we come to the communion table. We lift up our heart to the Lord. We lift up our heart in whatever condition we find them in. We lift up our weary heart, right? We lift up our broken heart. We lift up our doubting heart. And we let the Lord do whatever he wants with our hearts. And what he does is he fills our hearts with his spirit. He gives our hearts strength through the communion meal and worship and prayer ministry. We lift up our heart, not just in worship, we lift up our hearts in our thoughts. So we take the communion liturgy with us, we take the scriptures with us, and we exercise it. We choose to believe what is true, even when we cannot see it, feel it, touch it, or taste it. We lift up our hearts not only in our actions, not on, or not only in our words, not only in worship, but also in our actions. We do what we can. You are empowered, and I am, am empowered to do good, especially under pressure, especially when we are in less than ideal circumstances. You are fulfilling your life's calling and God's anointing over your life when you face directly into pressure, discouragement, opposition, failure, and you do what is right, as much good as you can do for as many people for as long as you can, that glorifies God. We sow seeds of encouragement when our hearts are discouraged. We build others up when our hearts are discouraged. We use our gifts when our hearts are discouraged. We endure suffering with hope, and we exercise the muscles of faith, hope, and love every day of our life in thought, word, and deed. And as we do, the Holy Spirit can help us take heart. William Wilberforce was a British politician who became a Christian in his mid-20s. At the age of 27, um, with the influence of some godly people in his life, he decided to focus his entire political career on ending the slave trade. And in his time, the slave trade was seen as something that open-minded people were supportive of. If you opposed the slave trade, you were seen as somewhat of a kooky extremist. And nevertheless, he saw with moral clarity the fact that this was not right. You can't just take people from their villages and enslave them for profit. You can't just kill them at whim. They're not less than human. They're made in God's image. And so at age 27, he was like, I'm going to focus my political career on this issue. This is going to be my issue. How long do you think it took William Wilberforce to see this through? How many years? How many months? You know, in the end, it took 46 years. 46 years from the age of 27 onward of setbacks, interruptions, campaigns, coalitions, working in the public sector, working in the private sector, grueling work amidst failing health for Wilberforce to see this through. Finally, at age 73, Wilberforce lived to see the British Parliament pass the Slavery Abolition Act of 1833, which abolished the slave trade in almost every part of the Roman Empire, or sorry, British Empire, which, like the Roman Empire, was spread far and wide. 
Now, three days after Wilberforce got the news, he slipped into a coma. And it was reported that he said this right before, thank God that I should have lived to witness a day in which England was willing to give 20 million sterling for the abolition of slavery. Aren't you glad he persisted for 46 years? Who knows? Who knows what would have come if William Wilberforce did not take heart? All the setbacks, all the frustrations, all the betrayals, all the ways in which it just did not happen fast like it should have happened. What started at age 27 didn't end until age 73, but it was what Jesus asked him to do for the sake of all the people spared from slavery and for all the people spared from taking part in the slave trade. I am so glad he didn't give up. After 73 years of life and 46 years of service, I expect that after William Wilberforce woke up from his coma, he looked directly into the face of Jesus in Emmanuel's land and heard Jesus say to him, well done, well done. How many times have we had to hear Jesus say, take heart in our setbacks, frustrations, horn honkins? <laughs> More days than you and I can count. But don't you want to wake up from your coma and hear Jesus say the words, well done. And that's why we listen to him now, because there will come a day when we will see him face to face and he will say, well done. Surrounded by all the angels and archangels and all the company of heaven and cloud of witnesses, we will look at Jesus's eyes and his face and he will say, well done. And all heaven and earth will shake underneath those words. Well done, my friend my son, my daughter, for all the blood, sweat, and tears. Well done for all that you did that I asked you to do. Well done. You persevered. You trusted me. You obeyed my commandments. Well done. You suffered well in that hospital room. Well done. You served many when you felt weak. By God's grace, when our task is complete, we can all hear those words together. Surrounded at the great final banquet where our hearts will be lifted up forever. And it will have been worth it. It will have been worth it. So for the glory of God and for the love of Christ, take heart. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.